What's up, guys? This is Bible Dingers Podcast. I am your host, Ryan, here with my friends, Mark and Nick, and we are Bible Dingers. So today we have a special episode. We have our friend, Dr. Paul Copan, uh, on a call with us today. Um, the reason why we are talking to Paul Copan is because we just finished the historical books of the Bible. And a lot of people have some issues with the historical books because some of them seem very violent and some of them people take issue with even even the um, Pentateuch books that we went through um, because some of the Mosaic laws might seem sexist or like they promote slavery or something like that. We're actually going to be going through all of those big questions today, at least most of them that you may have. We talk about sexism, racism, violence. Um, all kinds of things pertaining to the Pentateuch and the historical books. And uh, let me tell you a bit, of, a little bit, <laughs> a bit of it about uh, Paul Copan. Dr. Paul Copan is a Christian theologian, an analytic philosopher, an apologist, and an author. He's currently the professor at, um, at Palm Beach Atlantic University and holds the endowed Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. He's written and edited over 25 books in the area of philosophy of religion, apologetics, theology, science and religion, and the historicity of Jesus Christ, which includes works like Is God a Moral Monster, which I read and was amazing, and Did God Really Command Genocide, which I have not read, but I'm planning on reading. He's contributed many articles to professional journals and has written many essays for edited books. For six years, he served as the president of the Evangelical Philosophical Philosophical Society. Copan received his Bachelor's of Biblical Studies from Columbia International University, his Master's in Philosophy of Religion, and Master of Divinity from Trinity International University. Dr. Copan finished out his studies with a PhD in philosophy of religion from Marquette University. Dr. Copan is widely esteemed for his Old Testament studies, specifically dealing with the ethics of the Mosaic Covenant and the commands given to Old Testament Israel, which is why we decided to have him on for this episode. And I think we are going to cut right into that. So I hope that you guys enjoy it. Thanks. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It means a lot to us. Glad to be on. Yeah, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Of course. Cool. Uh, it's an honor to have you, honestly. So um, I'm just going to dive into our questions here. Um, we've just finished teaching through the historical books of the Old Testament. And uh, like everyone else listening, we, we're having a hard time reconciling some of the things we read with what we believe about God. How can an all-loving God do something like command the Canaanites to be completely wiped out? Well, I had a feeling you might ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, start by saying it is a question that a lot of people have asked and been uh, been troubled by. Uh, some of the things that I'll be uh, saying, I trust, will be helpful just in terms of the uh, giving a little bit of context for what is going on here. And uh, again, there are some ragged edges. Uh, we're not going to sew up all the loose ends, especially in the short time that we have, but hopefully we can make some headway and proceed from there. Uh, in, the, in the first place, when we're talking about the question of the Canaanites, uh, we are talking about a God who is all good, all knowing, all wise. And if he is commanding something, then God would have morally sufficient reason for doing so. Now, there are difficult commands uh, and there are commands that God would not issue. So, for example, God talks about uh, the, uh, the infant sacrifice that was practiced by the surrounding nations and by the Canaanites themselves. 
And God, uh, you know, of course, the in Jeremiah, he talks about these commands. He said things that I did not command, nor did it even enter my mind. Now, not that God didn't know about this, but God said he would not have commanded this horrific thing to be done. Uh, God can, he may command some difficult things, and we can expect some difficult things to come from God, um, that God's, whose ways are higher than ours, who's the cosmic authority, uh, we can expect that at some points uh, God is going to be challenging us. Uh, he's going to be, uh, in a sense, undermining our own priorities because he is the all-good, worship-worthy God, and we are uh, we are finite, limited uh, creatures and sinful ones at that. And so, so keep in mind that uh, you know some people think, oh, th- these commands are you know are so horrific, God couldn't have commanded them. But uh, maybe think, well, if God really did command these, and I think we have good reason for thinking that, and at least in some qualified way, then. What if God has a morally sufficient reason for commanding that? Mm-hmm. So that's 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 one thing to keep in mind. Uh, secondly, we need to keep in mind that the Canaanites were not the kind of people that you want babysitting your kids, mm. or uh, you know just you know living next door to you. Even uh, the Canaanites engaged in practices that would have been considered criminal in any civilized society. So mm. you've got bestiality, ritual prostitution, infant sacrifice, uh, you know, you've got uh, incest and so forth. And of course, the Canaanite deities practice these sorts of things. Uh, and so they took their cues from their own gods. And, and of course, the God of Israel is, uh, is radically distinct from uh, this uh, you know this way of operating, and so he. Uh, so there. So again, this is the sort of scenario where it is you know, not just people, nice people, minding their own business, and God commands them to be uh, driven out or wiped out, or however you want it put. Um, thirdly, the Israelites, as you know, are in the. They've just. You know, they're a fledgling nation. They've come out of the land of Egypt, and. The and God makes a covenant with these people, and the temptation for these people from the very beginning. God makes a covenant at Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, they uh, they abandon the covenant and offer sacrifices to the golden calf. They are routinely acting in rebellion against that covenant. It's treasonous activity. If you understand the ancient Near East, God is making a covenant with the people of Israel, and this is part of their identity. This is part of their nationhood. And for them to go after these other gods, to compromise themselves spiritually, morally, and otherwise, is a is, is a significant problem. So God, knowing how easily tempted Israel is going to be, is giving them severe warnings and telling them to remove the danger. And I'd say the, you know, as we read in Deuteronomy 7, the primary danger is not Canaanites themselves. You couldn't tell the difference between a Canaanite and an Israelite. They were, they looked alike, dressed alike, spoke the same language, etc. So, so from outward appearances, there is no difference. But God was trying to preserve their uh, their moral and spiritual integrity from being uh, you know, from being undermined by the morality and uh, theology or religion of the Canaanites. So God was more interested in destroying the the artifacts, the the uh, representations of religion um, that would be a snare to the Israelites, rather than. Under you know, rather than simply destroying the Canaanites, it wasn't anything ethnically based. Um, the Israelites themselves came from uh, the Canaanites, uh, at least in part. Um, so we we see that there is you know there you know that they are uh, so there's no ethnic issue here, uh, but rather it's theological and moral. Um, so, so keep in mind that there is a mission that Israel has to accomplish. That God seeks to bring blessing to the nations, and this blessing is being compromised or threatened to be compromised at a number of different turns. And so God is 
telling the Israelites who are prone to this sort of a thing to beware and to guard the integrity of the mission of the mission that again will ultimately come through Jesus of Nazareth, the faithful Israelite, in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. Uh, so there is a cosmic battle going on here. I think we so often lose sight of that, that it's not just one nation against another, um, that there is a cosmic picture in view here, that God is doing battle with these uh, with these uh, false gods, with these uh, you know, demonically inspired gods that are seeking to lead Israel astray and to derail it from its mission. Also keep in mind, too, that God is patiently waiting. Uh, God is waiting over you know, uh, half a millennium. He tells Abraham in the you know, in, in Genesis 15 that he's going to wait until the sin of the Amorites is filled up. The time was not ready for the for the Canaanites to uh, be driven out of the land. That had to come after a long period of waiting, including the Israelites being enslaved in the land of Egypt. So the time only comes when they are ripe, when they've hit rock bottom, when there is no return, the point of no return. And so it doesn't mean that there can't be Canaanites who are salvaged, as it were. The you know Rahab finds salvation. She recognizes that this is the one true God. And notice that they've had over 40 years of preparation um, because they know what God did in the land of Egypt. They know how he dis- how he delivered the Israelites, how he brought them through the Red Sea and so forth, how he, he you know, delivered them in the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, mm-hmm. uh, leading them along. So all of, there are all these public signs, and you see throughout the book of Joshua as well as into 1 Samuel, that these pagan nations around them, they know of the reputation of the God of Israel. They know what he has done and so forth. So there is, in a sense, ample warning for them that uh, that this God means business. And if they're not going to be in line with this God, like Rahab or uh, like these strangers that are mentioned in the Canaanite strangers in, in at the end of Joshua chapter eight, then they're they're leaving themselves open to to harm uh, if they don't want to turn from their ways. So the the primary command for the uh, for the Canaanites for the Israelites against the Canaanites is to drive them out. It's like phase two. Uh, you know, there's a phase two as well as a phase one. Phase one is to drive them out which presupposes that they're still surviving. But if they're still sticking around, then, they're, then, then, they, are, they're, then they leave their, themselves open to, uh, to death. And so there is that uh, point where they could simply be, dis- you know, could leave themselves open to, to destruction or death. Mm. Um, but also there's another component, which is very interesting when you see the language of utterly destroy, leave alive, nothing that breathes. That is also language of ancient Near Eastern trash talk hyperbole. Uh, It's exaggeration. Uh, Just like we say, oh, we totally destroyed that team. Uh, Doesn't mean they were literally destroyed, but you you had maybe a decisive victory. Sometimes even if you had, in the ancient Near East, if you had a less than decisive victory, you could still say we totally destroyed them. We left alive no one that breathed. Hmm. Uh, No one would have thought that you would, uh, that there were, um, you know, no, literally no people around. In fact, you'd have a very good crowd of survivors, and you could still say, we utterly destroyed them, we left alive, nothing breathed. And so that's the kind of language that's going on in the ancient Near East of hyperbole. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of times, you, you it, it seems like wherever you see utter destruction, no survivors, you see these people popping up later on, like, you know, uh, you know, in, in Judges chapter one, you know, they, the, the city of uh, you know, Jerusalem, with the Jebusites there, that uh, they were, you know, that they were destroyed and burned by fire. And then you read just in the same chapter a little bit later on that they could not drive out the Jebusites huh. from uh, from the from the city of Jerusalem. So they and they remain there to this day. Uh, so you see that kind of language, or uh, you know, so I can go on and give multiple examples here. But uh, but again, that is also part of the picture that needs to be understood. And it's a gradual process, probably over you know a couple of hundred years that uh, that. There is a slow taking of the land. Uh, there are only three cities that are literally destroyed by fire, uh, you know, I, Hazor, and Jericho. The rest are left intact, and it's basically like the Israelites are engaging in these disabling raids and then going back to their base camp in Gilgal. They're not uh, going in, flooding in like this military blitzkrieg, but it's kind of a piecemeal, uh, gradual infiltration of the land. 
so again, those are some things that are perhaps helpful to be kept in mind uh, as setting the context for, I think, what is this really dominant question that comes up when we're dealing with uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, a question like that really takes a, a real answer and a lot of context to go over. So I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize that. And that was just an introductory paragraph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, um, we definitely want to get to some more topics because we, we know you're kind of the authority on a lot of these topics. Um, so I, I hope that we can hit some other big topics and maybe get a, a big overview like that. Um, mm-hmm. So we mentioned that we just finished the historical books of the Old Testament on our show. We also did the Pentateuch, obviously, because we're doing uh, the books in the Bible in order. And something that we noticed in the book of Exodus um, is it seems that the Mosaic law supports slavery. Is that true? Uh, Supports slavery. Well, it's a loaded question. For one thing, what do you mean by slavery? Um, And a lot of people, when they hear the term slavery, they think, oh, the antebellum South. They think of uh, Uncle Tom's cabin. They think of... Uh, you know, you know, they think of the, you know, you know, Frederick Douglass. Uh, that's the sort of thing that they're thinking about. And what is helpful, it's interesting when you read the book of Exodus, we have the term used for servitude or slavery. I think it's a poor translation. Um, that the term servitude or even working, the ter- it's related to the term eved, you know, servant, slave, can also mean worker. Um, it's related to the word avad, which means work. It can mean serve. Uh, in fact, my, I grew up in a Slavic home, and so you know, my my father, you know, in the, well, the language, you know, in Russian, the word rab, servant or worker, comes from the word rabotach, which is kind of the simple word to work. And I think that that captures it uh, very well. Uh, that you have the Israelites, and so I, I'd say I'd stick with something like servanthood or servitude or servant, rather than assuming that slave is the appropriate term to use. For example, you have Moses and Joshua who are called the Eved Adonai, the servant of the Lord. Um, that's the po- a very positive use of the term. Hmm. It depends upon the context, whether it's positive or negative. So you have, for example, the Israelites who are being, again, they're in the crucible, they're in the furnace of the you know, of slavery in Egypt. And so there you can talk about, yeah, that, that's slavery, that's harsh, that's oppressive. But Moses, he says, you know, again, God tells him to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. The Lord in the wilderness. That's a positive servitude. That's a this is seen as liberation um, from from Pharaoh. That's a good thing to to go into and, and serve the Lord uh, outside of Egypt in the wilderness. Mm. So so uh, again, the context will tell us what this actually uh, how this should be understood. But fundamentally, we're dealing with a dynamic dependency relationship. The person who is the worker is dependent upon someone else for his livelihood, uh, is someone who is, uh, you know, it is, uh, has a superior, as it were. Um, but again, it's not something that's inherently negative. The, you know, do you have a good superior or a bad superior? Um, so, so there you have uh, something that's very, seen as very positive. So just even kind of at a glance, the term, uh, you know, the idea of slavery needs to be deeply qualified. And uh, even in the even in understanding how servitude works in Israel, it's more like a uh, what we could call is indentured servitude that you are enter you enter into it not because you've been kidnapped, which was prohibited and punishable by death. Um, you know, the, and and uh, you know, if a slave ran away again, contrary to the fugitive slave law during the time of the Civil War, um, if a slave ran away from a foreign land, he was to be able to settle in any of the cities in Israel and was not to be sent back to his harsh master outside of Israel. In fact, some of these other nations outside of Israel had extradition treaties that if our, our slave runs, to, a slave from us runs into your country, you return him back to us. And so they had these sorts of arrangements. Um, you, you could be punished capitally 
if you harbored a runaway slave, according to the Code of Hammurabi, the Babylonian Code. And so so you have these sorts of uh, differences that are so pronounced. And the humanity of the slave is is most notable, and it's very distinct from other ancient Near Eastern law collections, that the, the, the servant is the one, if you knock out his eye, uh, or his tooth, you know, you gouge, you gouge out his eye or knock out his tooth, which puts, you, puts another spin on indentured servitude. Um, uh, that that you that you are to let him go, and without any sort of remaining debt. But he's to work for you for only six years and then to be released, and you cannot keep him longer unless he voluntarily agrees to it. And it was actually, if you're a if you're a if you're a quote slave or a servant in the land of Israel, it's like you're part of the family, as uh, the Old Testament scholar John Goldengay says. Mm. So this was not a bad deal. It could actually, you know, the you know, the, the 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 head of the house provided the servants with you know, food, clothing, shelter, um, work, and so forth. You know, and, and, and uh, to pay pay back the debt, and typically they're related to you. They're part of they're part of your uh, tribal land, your clan, your kin, your kinfolk. So, so again, that's all part of the bigger picture. Um, so, Israel, there are laws regulating how people are to engage into this contract, this contract of servitude. Um, and that uh, that it is, and of course, uh, you know, what about some people say? What about Leviticus 20, Leviticus twenty five, where foreigners? It says you may acquire them, uh, and well, some people say, look, they're they're just property. You may acquire them and uh, and pass them on to your children as possessions. Well, those language, the language of acquire and possession, uh, those are also lang- that's language used of Israel the Lord's possession, that the Lord, the same word, acquired them. Uh, Exodus uh, 15 says when he brought them through the Red Sea to become his people. Uh, So the language of acquisition, uh, acquiring, possessing, uh, that is the language that's used. We use that in kind of our our language of baseball and football, uh, our sports sports language where this player was traded, the, the, the team owner said this. Well, again, it's not dehumanizing to talk this way. That's just how things work from a legal point of view. When you're in the military, the military kind of owns you. If you say, I just got married, you can't just take a break and say, I'm, I'm no longer obligated to you. No, you signed the contract. You've got to finish the time. Hmm. And it's interesting that at the end of Leviticus 25, the person who is once who had once been a slave uh, you know, or a servant in Israel as a foreigner, it's very interesting that it says that if this foreigner, this, this uh, a resident alien, if this person becomes a, a person of means, that is, you don't have to remain in this state, that you could become a person of means, it says, and it's possible for you to have an Israelite to work for you, that you may acquire, same word, acquire an Israelite to work for you. Does that mean that the Israelite is just a just a just a piece of furniture, just chattel slavery here? No, we're we're seeing the same kind of language that applied both ways, um, and so th- this is the kind of uh, material that is often not discussed when we're dealing with this issue of. Uh, of slavery or servitude in the Old Testament. So things are regulated, things are controlled. Uh, there are certain benefits that come to those who are uh, servants that they, you know, the kind of the vulnerable of the land, the poor of the land can come and glean from fields that haven't been cut all the way uh, or pluck fruit from trees that have not been picked clean by the owners so that the poor of the land uh, could sustain themselves and not have to uh, sell themselves into servitude. So that's the kind of, you know, that's uh, the bigger picture that's uh, that's in view here. And so, uh, so hopefully that brings a little context to what's going on. It does. Um, I did want to keep going with some of these bigger questions that we have, but I've heard this specific uh, argument against indentured slave, or sorry, indentured servanthood, and things mm-hmm. like that a lot. Um, the scripture in Exodus 21, where oh, yeah. it talks about um, you can beat your slave with a rod and punish them. And as long as they don't die, then you won't be disciplined. Uh, that doesn't, I don't know, that does, it doesn't come across as indentured servitude to me. Can you kind of give an explanation for that? Uh, sure. 
Um, of course, this is the context of accidental uh, injury. Uh, so keep that in mind here, that there's a, a, a broader context um, for this um, before we uh, go into that. For example, uh, so uh, so it says that if, um, uh, yeah, so as, as you read, in Ex this is in, in, again in Exodus, uh, Exodus 21, um, you know, if men have, a, it's interesting, it says in, in verse 18, it says, if men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with the stone or with his fist and he does not die but remains in bed, notice this context is setting it up for what's to come later on. If he, uh, it says, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then the one who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay, here's the, again, this is kind of parallel, pay for the loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. So there's a cost, the medical costs that are being paid here. Um, and this is part of the judge's judgment that, oh, you've paid for this person's recovery and it is a credit to you. There's a kind of a charitable understanding that this thing was not uh, done you know, intentionally. Uh, you didn't strike him to kill him, et cetera. Uh, so there's this uh, this imagery of of kind of accidental death. Um, so then it says if it, if a if a man strikes his male or female servant with a rod and he dies at his hand, notice this: he shall be punished. Who's going to? And again, that is language of capital punishment. He shall, you know, he sh it'll be he'll be avenged. Hmm. Um, uh, what does that mean? Oh, the person who is the master or the uh, employer, he can be put to death for killing. So there's, uh, you know, here you have a life for a life here. Hmm. So notice that, so we're not dealing with, oh, he's just property. No, this person could be, this this uh, employer could be put to death for killing his servant. Again, unlike the kind of regulations in the ancient Near East where you pretty much had a free reign with what you did with your with your servant or slave. Okay, then you get to if, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance, you know, there's that, that, that language again, uh, shall be taken. And then it says, for he is his property. That's one translation. Another translation is literally, um, he or that is his silver. In other words, he's already paying for this person. So he's only harming his own pocketbook by bringing injury to his own servant. And it presumes that the, that the person who struck him did not intend to kill him. Uh, that this is, you know, that the, that it was not intended to uh, the murder. There was no murderous intent. It was an accidental death. And so there is a charitable read here that, again, those who are the judges are making rulings on this and they are able to discern these sorts of things. It's not as though uh, someone can just. Uh, you know, someone who has malicious intent and said, hey, look, he only he, he only walked around for a day or two and then he died. Uh, they're able to discern something more is going on here. But the point here is, is that can you discern between something that is intentional and accidental? And notice that it says for he is his silver or it could be translated for that uh, is his silver. Um, in other words, that could also be referring to what happened above the pay, the payment for the loss of time, the compensation, the medical bill that's being taken care of. Uh, this is the understanding that Harry Hoffner of the University of Chicago, uh, hit, uh, um, you know, who was a uh, you know an, a Hittiteologist, uh, someone who knew of this uh, this language very well, he said that this is probably what's going on here. That the the he is his property should be translated it is his silver, and that he's talking about a medical bill here. But either way, uh, we see very clearly that if the servant is killed, then, uh, you know, th then, you know, you know, you know, immediately, then the person who struck him is to be put to death because murderous intent is assumed. Otherwise, it's assumed to be uh, accidental, and unintentional, and so forth. So, so there is a, a uh, again, a lesser uh, punishment that is there. Again, accidental deaths are not, in, in, in reading the Old Testament law, accidental deaths are not uh, treated as, say, as capitally uh, as capital offense. You can go to, say, a city of refuge and so forth if you if you harm someone accidentally uh, and killed him. So again, there is protection for those for accidental killings. But again, judges are able to discern these types of things. Hmm.
That's a good answer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. You definitely gave us some stuff to think about. Um, we just want to continue with the, these list of questions here. Um, sure. The Old Testament is packed with stuff we have questions about. Uh, what about poor treatment of women? Doesn't God allow women to be spoils of war? Okay, spoils of war. <laughs> well, uh, keep in mind that the treatment of women, remember, of course, we read at the very beginning that women are made in the image of God. Genesis uh, chapter 1 reminds us of that. Male and female, God created them in the image of God. Um, and so there is this fundamental equality uh, in Genesis chapter 2. The woman is made from the side of Adam, that she is uh, an equal. That's a picture of equality from the rib, from the side. Um, you know, some people say, oh, didn't he um, name her? Didn't he call her Eve? That assumes that he has superiority over her. Uh, no, in, uh, in, in, not, in uh, Genesis 16, Hagar you know, same word is used. She names God. <laughs> you are the God who sees, uh, using the same sort of terminology. Certainly, we don't want to say that uh, that Hagar is has authority over God here. Uh, so, so again, but there's a fundamental equality that's established from the beginning. Now, are things perfect in the ancient Near East? By no means. There is a patriarchal system. There is a presumption uh, in many of these uh, cultures that males are superior, and they tend to be the you know the head of the household they tend to be the uh, legal uh, brokers uh, making arrangements and so forth uh, you know in the sense they're the buffer zone between the family and the rest of society or the between the family and the law itself uh, and so that's the that's the kind of picture that we need to understand here but we also see a certain subtext going on here that these things are being routinely undermined we see uh, for example. Deborah, who is a judge in Israel, we see women of strength and power rising up in leadership and so forth uh, in Israel's history. Uh, we see even the, the woman in Proverbs 31, I mean, we see someone who is not only taking care of her family, clothing them and so forth, but she's engaging in real estate. She is making, she's a merchant, you know, she, you know, she's a, mer you know, a merchant who is selling her, her, her stuff to those who are, uh, you know, you know uh, journeying and so on. She's a woman of commerce, real estate, and so forth. So this is a, uh, a go-getter kind of woman. Uh, so this is uh, so we see that kind of a picture uh, when when women are being treated in the law of Moses, when there is a penalty, say adultery, both the man and the woman are treated as accountable before the law. It's not as though the guy gets off with a slap on the wrist and the woman gets put to death, as you do see in some like honor killings and so forth, um, where you know where the the guy gets away with a lot and the woman is the one who, even though she's been raped, say she's the one who is the has allegedly brought dishonor to her family for being raped, uh, etc. So so again, it's a very different picture. Uh, what about this issue of the spoils of war? Uh, well, I would, uh, I'm, I'm, we could say more about uh, this in, in greater detail, but let me just kind of cut to the chase here. We see after a woman, like in Deuteronomy 21, where a woman from who has been captured, uh, that if she is, um, again, marriageable, then the, what, is the, what is the process? So you have to wait a whole month where she engages in this kind of separation ceremony where her head is shaved, her nails are trimmed, uh, and so forth. Her, you know, She's given a new set of clothes and so forth. And, it, and she mourns for a full month, and it says, after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she will be your wife. Notice you have to wait until sexual relations take place after you're married. You know? hmm. uh, and, and so he, there is this... There is this process that has followed. So to say they're the spoils of war, well, okay, I mean, in, in, in standard, uh, you know, either the women were raped uh, or they were just put to death you know, automatically. Um, and so here, at least, there is something humane about allowing them to become assimilated into the population of the Israelites if indeed they're willing to embrace the way of life in Israel and that shaving uh, of the uh, hair and uh, trimming of the nail ceremony indicates that. 
Notice too that when when uh, soldiers are engaged in battle uh, in Israel, they are not allowed to engage in sexual relations, even you know before they go. It's it's like a holy thing that they're undertaking, and so they have to abstain from sexual relations. They can't simply just go into war and engage in sexual relations as though this is say war rape or something like that. No, that was forbidden. It was assumed that if you have sexual relations with a woman as an Israelite, you have first married her. Uh, that that is the only appropriate way of engaging in sexual relations. Mm. So, so this is, you know, remember even, uh, you know, when you think of, uh, you know, the story of Bathsheba and David, Uriah the Hittite comes back and he's not engaging in sexual relations because the men are on the battlefield fighting. And so how could he go in to his wife? Uh, and, uh, and, and so even before they went to Mount Sinai, you know, everybody, you know, no one could engage in sexual relations before they came before God or the priests of Nob when, uh, when, uh, you know, when, when David comes in and he's asked, you know, for the, he's asking for the bread, uh, the show bread from the priests in this, you know, cause his men are hungry. Um, he tells them that his men, his soldiers, they haven't been engaging in sexual relations with women. So again, you see that kind of an ethos coming out there. And, uh, I think a lot of times people just assume that if you, if women are assimilated into the land of Israel after war, oh, that they're just, you know, oh, you can rape them or do whatever you want with them. No, there's a certain protocol to follow. Hmm. I kind of, uh, in the same vein there, I kind of want to ask about the Mosaic law that seems a little sexist with certain laws, uh, such as, and this is kind of an obscure one, but uh, whenever women have children, and then they have to go through the the whole cleansing ritual. A couple things there. Doesn't that kind of assume that somehow women having children is unclean? And then I guess the question after that is how come there's a differential there between when women have boys and women have girls? When they have boys, they don't have to go through the cleansing process for as long as they do when they have girls. Right. Well, a couple of things. Uh, notice that um, there are ceremonies for men uh, when they, after they've engaged in sexual intercourse or when they have nocturnal emissions, that they also have to go through a ritual of cleansing. They too need to engage in this purification. Uh, whenever you have, say, uh, something that is out of the, in a sense, out of the body, something that is not part of the normal uh, operation uh, you know, when you have, if you will, you know, these dishonorable discharges, um, these are, you know, these are seen as being like the women's, uh, um, period or, you know, uh, or there's a seminal emission and so forth. These are seen as, um, fluids that are now outside of the body, that there is something that is in a sense moving the direction of death and so on. Uh, so that there is a, and again, we think of these purity laws as, oh, that's a little strange, it's a little odd. Well, yeah, I mean, for us, uh, for them, it would have been, uh, you know, understandable. It, it was a, you know, a ritual purity culture and so forth. They had these sorts of rituals. And so God is speaking into that kind of a setting. Hmm. Um, what about the issue of, uh, sorry, no pun intended there. Um, uh, what about the matter of, uh, you know, women, and, you know, boys and girls being born, um, but yet the woman has to remain longer, uh, twice as long if she has a, you know, away from, say, tabernacle worship and so forth than if she has a boy. Right. Well, again, there's some speculation about this. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could speculate about. But uh, one of them, one of the suggestions is that uh, in Canaanite religion, temple prostitution was a common thing, and you had temple prostitutes, women prostitutes who are part of this system. And so it was a way of speaking of, you know, in a sense, women and their daughters, uh, you, know, you know, keeping their distance from the, getting mixed up in this kind of a worship. It was perhaps a message uh, being sent that you are not to go near the temple, um, you know, you know be, because of this sort of an issue. Uh, so this is the kind of this is the kind of uh, you know surmising that is done. Uh, there are some questions that people ask about this. Uh, again, we can perhaps uh, speculate a little bit, but uh, but again, those are some I think concrete proposals that have been given. I guess I want to kind of keep with the topic of cleanliness in the temple, 
because mm-hmm. you also see in the Mosaic Law that it doesn't really allow disfigured people or people with certain disease diseases to come right. join other people in the temple. Um, so how come they're considered unclean and they're not they're not allowed to worship with the assembly? Yeah. Well, when we look at these texts, I think a lot of times for us, we think, you know, like you, you do have, you know, mention of leprosy or, you know, uh, even a priest, you know, you, you can't be a priest if you have certain physical defects. And uh, Leviticus, uh, you know, 13 and 14 talk about skin diseases that, you know, if you, that you can't come into the community unless it's been been cleared by the priest you know, that you that's cleared up and then the priest gives you the all clean as it were um, from uh, to pronounce you, that you can be incorporated back into the worship of the people of Israel the corporate worship it doesn't mean you can't you know draw near to God as a, as even as a leper uh, and so forth but there is a a certain exclusion uh, in that uh, you know and, and so what what about this it seems like you know we're very concerned with people with disabilities and so forth uh, shouldn't they be included well we in our society and again keep in mind we have to be careful about being chronological snobs that somehow uh, we're because we live later that this is now uh, you know it's better uh, and so forth no, there are just certain different priorities that they had in, in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East that were more significant than what we would consider today like when we think about freedom and privacy and democracy as, as modern day priorities but uh, but preserving order or staying within certain proper realms or domains. That's why you have, say, kosher and non-kosher food. Certain things have to be within their proper domains in order to be permissible. Um, and so these were a priority, uh, you know, in in the ancient Near East. To keep these categories of order uh, were very important in the you know in in Israel. And so there's a sense of order, uh, you know, that that came to even matters of purity. And uh, in coming before God, so pollution, purification rites, and their symbolism reinforced this notion of, of order. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but keep, it, keep in mind, too, this, this was highly symbolic. The perfection of the priest and of sacrificial offerings, these were symbolic of the need to approach God in the correct way. That if you drew near to God and didn't pay attention to the protocols, you were, you know, your life is in jeopardy. I mean, that's what you know, they had a, the, uh, the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would have a rope around his waist and bells on the bottom of his, uh, of his robe that if all of a sudden the bell stopped tinkling uh, beyond the, the veil, you'd have to pull this guy out because he had been, you know, he'd been playing with uh, holy things and uh, hadn't taken the holiness of God seriously. And that's why you have the sons of Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu in, in Leviticus chapter 10, who are, who are tinkering with uh, strange fire, basically probably a foreign, you know, an offering of incense or fire to uh, a foreign deity, and they were struck down. And so the Lord says that whoever approaches me <laughs> has to approach me as holy that God is going to be honored in this way, uh, that approaching God isn't to be taken lightly. Now, that said, just a few chapters later, and as we look at a, a text like this uh, in, in Leviticus, um, we, are read, we, we read about those who have these disabilities. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God. Uh, you know, in Deuteronomy 17, it says that anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, that person is cursed. Hmm. We see David caring for the crippled son of Jonathan and, and so forth. And, and also just generally, we, we see that God has compassion on everything that he's made. Psalm 145, 9. Uh, that these are, you know, that God is a, you know, as a father, has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He, he's mindful that we are but dust. We all have that disability. We're dust balls. <laughs> and so, so we are, so God has compassion on us. So you see that even though there are certain protocols that are required as you go into worship, and again, there's a high degree of symbolism here and certain priorities that are being expressed. We also see that there is a concern not to take advantage of those who are vulnerable, those who have these uh, disabilities and so forth, but rather to care for them, to look out for them. Uh, you know, Job is one who speaks about his, how he cares for, uh, for those who are, you know, he was he the eyes to the blind and so forth. He was the one who stepped in and cared for them and so on. 
Uh, and, and so these are the types of things that we need to keep in mind. Look at the bigger picture uh, of what's going on. Everyone is made in the image of God. Uh, there are certain protocols given a certain mindset or worldview in ancient Israel. Uh, and God is stepping into this situation, working with that kind of a worldview in order to make a point about what the covenant means, about the kind of uh, the way in which this God, this uh, suzerain, this Lord is to be approached and so forth. Uh, so, so again, it's, uh, it's a different way of looking at things, uh, things that may seem strange to us, odd to us, even maybe discriminatory. Um, but there's a, there's a high degree of symbolism here that ought to be taken uh, into account. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that, uh, that answer is very deep for me. Um, Dr. Copan, I don't know if there's any way. Um, and it, I'm a type of person that I like to... Like if I could explain this to a six-year-old, I would like to do it. Is there any way, like if an unbeliever approach us with this question and just tearing apart the gospel, is there a quick way, like a simpler way to answer this question? And if there's not, forgive me, but, uh, you know, we can cut this part. I just, I'm curious from my own knowledge. Yeah. Uh, well, are you talking about um, this last question that you asked? This yes, one about like what about this, this, this figure people? Like if I tell somebody, right? It, this is just a ritual. This is just the protocol that they had back then. But look how God is honoring these people someplace else. That's still a, a, a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Well, I mean, think of, you know, would you say, you know, I would, you know, let's take a person who can't sing and let's put them on the worship team on a Sunday morning. Um, are you being discriminatory here? I mean, what's going on? Um, you know, you want this person, you want the person who's leading the music to lead well. It uh, doesn't mean that you can't have someone who, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you know, let's say this person has uh, Down syndrome or the person's in a wheelchair or whatever. I mean, sure. But but again, there's a certain uh, order or protocol that we follow even in, in worship where if you want someone to help lead worship, uh, you want someone who can carry a tune. Uh, so, so is it being discriminatory? Well, yeah, but, uh, but there is a certain purpose to, uh, to this that we ought to, uh, take into account. Um, again, it doesn't mean, like I said, in, in ancient Israel, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there, that these people, uh, who had leprosy and, and, and so forth, uh, that they did not have worth. Um, in fact, we see that there is a picture of, you know, when the, when the new day comes, uh, you know, when when the when the Messiah comes, when the new heavens and new earth come, uh, that the eyes of the blind are going to be opened, the ears of the deaf are going to be unstopped. They're going to be unstopped. You know, you see these passages in Isaiah and uh, Zephaniah and so forth. That there is a picture of of a God who is yes, things are not right the way that they are, um, but God. But there's also this God has has this. Uh, this future uh, that awaits us all, and whatever our handicap is, whatever our disability is, uh, you know, if we trust in God, He is going to restore us to uh, to wholeness. That this is something that God is doing. But I think also keep in mind too that this sort of a thing, uh, you know, some things may not be as readily understood given the gap between us and an ancient Near Eastern culture that's so different from us, not only in time. Uh, but also in, uh, in in just the cultural uh, differences that there are. Uh, and so there are certain priorities that we have uh, in, you know, in, in a number of different, you know, whether it be jobs or whatever, uh, where, you know, we understand that there's something like, you know, you may, and again, I know this seems superficial, but uh, when you've got people who are, um, you know, waiting on tables, I mean, there's kind of a simple, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of restaurants and so forth. If you've got, say, sleeves on your arm, you know, tattoos, uh, some people may, you know, they, I don't know, makes makes them feel uncomfortable or whatever. And so they ask you to wear long sleeves so that they, those are covered up. Is that discriminatory? Well, uh, in some ways it is, but they also have a certain context in mind that they want to, there's a clientele to serve. They want to keep uh, the mindset of the, of the clientele uh, in, in, in mind and so forth. So, and so there are some ways in which we could perhaps bridge the gap and say, well, look, you know, it seems discriminatory here, but there's there's a certain goal in mind. There's a certain context to consider, et cetera. Hmm. Understood. Thank you. Yep. Uh, the next question that we have is, what do you think about the cruciform hermeneutic? 
as a method for interpreting these passages. Okay, now uh, here we come to um, uh, someone you know, I've interacted with before. His name is Greg Boyd. He wrote a book called Crucifixion of the Warrior God, two volumes, uh, 1,500 or so pages, 1,600 pages. And um, I have done, if you're interested, I've done a uh, book review of it. Uh, it's called, uh, you know, Greg Boyd's Misunderstanding of the Warrior God. Yes, I've read it. And, okay. <laughs> I've read both. Yeah. And so, uh, where, and it, of course, you know, I give, I lay out what cruciformity looks like, what Greg Boyd is, uh, is um, emphasizing. And, and if fundamentally, it cuts to this, that, uh, that the things that were said in the Old Testament by Moses and Joshua and so forth, where it says, drive them out, or when God offers a command uh, to, uh, you know, that person shall be put to death and so forth. Well, Greg Boyd says God couldn't have commanded those things because, you know, of course, he's a, well, I think a lot of his pacifism is superimposed on some of these Old Testament texts. Uh, I don't think that's the fundamental issue because there are some pacifists who uh, see that God is actually there is you know, you know action that is um, forceful if you want to call it violent in the Old Testament and that God is behind it and that you can't escape this and so there are some pacifists who will acknowledge that uh, but uh, but for Greg Boyd you know when when Moses is saying you shall you know drive them out and so on well like Deuteronomy 20, et cetera, that this is not God's command. This is Moses' command, and that he is just superimposing his own violent, his own violence-prone worldview onto what God is saying when God says he's going to, you know, peacefully lead out the Canaanites uh, into, into another place. He's going to relocate them um, it's really hard to read that, I must say, that he's going to somehow you know, peacefully relocate them because God, God is often using the efforts of the Israelites to, uh, to fight against the enemies. And so you read that both you know, the Israelites are involved in fighting, but the Lord is also one who brought the victory. So you have, and it's interesting too, even before you get to these commands, etc., the Amalekites attack the Israelites after they've crossed the Red Sea, and Moses is praying while Joshua's fighting, and Aaron and her are holding up the arms of Moses, and and uh, and and so the Amalekites are defeated. They're trusting the Lord, but also fighting, and uh, and 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 again they were being attacked. Uh, I don't, I don't I haven't seen what Greg Boyd would propose here uh, in terms of what should be done. Uh, they wanted to peacefully peacefully pass through the land of lands of Sihon and Og, and they said we're not going to you know we're not going to touch anything. We just want to pass through. And Sihon and Og, these kings, of uh, you know uh, you know Bashan and Samaria, uh, they are uh, they attacked the Israelites, and then the Israelites had the victory. Well, what were they supposed to do? They're trying to be peaceful, mm-hmm. and they're being attacked. Uh, or take this. Well, yeah, I, well I, I can go into a lot more detail here, but I I'd simply, simply, I, I think the account just doesn't deal fairly with a, a ton of texts in the Old Testament. And I think you know when Greg Boyd talks about cruciformity, he's saying that our hermeneutic, our way of interpreting Scripture, should be understood through this narrow lens. I, I think it's too narrow. This narrow lens of you know, if you want to see the character of God, look at Jesus Christ on the cross, saying, "Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing." That this is true, kind of the essence of cruciformity. Mm-hmm. That's one very narrow sliver of Jesus' life. You also have Jesus driving money changers out of the temple. That does not look like the cruciformity that Greg Boyd is talking about when Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. Uh, So I'd say Greg Boyd's version of cruciformity needs to be broadened. It's too narrow, and it it, it twists what the evidence actually states. Um, Greg Boyd says, well, at least no animals were killed in the the making of this uh, story in, you know, when he's driving out the money changers. Uh, but, uh, But still, Jesus is acting in a very forceful way. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 18, that it would be better for a person who leads one of the uh, one of his disciples astray, one of these little ones, 
to have a millstone hung around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus speaking. Yeah. That doesn't sound like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think it just, if that is the, your only emphasis and you forget about the excoriation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, if you forget about, you know, even Jesus in the book of Revelation, he is ask, acting in a very forceful way. For example, in, this is Jesus speaking. And Greg Boyd doesn't really touch these tech, a lot of these texts in his book. Uh, in, in Revelation 2, 20 to 23, uh, Jezebel, a false teacher, a false prophetess, uh, is, you know, she is leading people into sexual immorality and, you know, and, uh, and uh, eating, you know, you know, engaging in these pagan rituals of, uh, you know, an idolatry. Uh, that she is, it's, Jesus says that he's cast her upon a bed of sickness and has given her time to repent, but she refuses. And he says, you know, if she doesn't repent, I will, you know, make war. You know, he says, I will strike dead her followers. That's Jesus speaking. Hmm. Now, again, that does not sound like Father, forgive them. There's also, you know, part of who Jesus is, he is, you know, we see, read about the wrath of the Lamb uh, in, Re- in the book of Revelation, and we see that Jesus, Jesus is wrathful. Uh, he is not, you know, and, and wrath, I think, is an expression of love that God is, you know, he acts and, and acts in, in judgment uh, in order to, you know, and often trying to redeem and so forth. But there comes a time when when you have resisted long enough. And so judgment uh, falls uh, upon you. Or in, in Jude chapter five, it's very interesting, the the best manuscript evidence uh, you know, in Jude chapter five is one that actually tells us not that some you know that when you know in the Old Testament it says that the, that Jesus when he after he had led the people out of Israel this is a Christocentric reading the New Testament writers that they are that he said that he destroyed some of them in the wilderness hmm. he destroyed them in the wilderness now that again does not sound like the cruciformity that Greg Boyd is talking about and again I can go on listing passage after passage. And I just find that Greg, I mean, I, I know Greg and we're friends and, and so forth, but I think he, he dances around too many passages. And I think that he is, uh, that there's some texts that he simply does not handle uh, squarely. And, and, and he doesn't treat these like the Old Testament texts as the New Testament writers themselves do, like in Hebrews chapter 11. That the that the, the the those from Jericho, Rahab was not punished. You know, she it says that she was not destroyed along with them, with those who are disobedient. So there is a punishment aspect here, and the author of Hebrews recognizes that. That um, you know that many people they fought in. You know that says they fought in battles. They were victorious in battle and so forth. And this is seen as an expression of faith and that God brought deliverance and so forth, uh, that this is not seen as something that is negative. Uh, you see Paul, for example, you know, when it comes to pacifism, um, you know, how do you square that with, uh, with Paul when he's in, in the book of Acts, when, he, uh, when his life is under threat from the Jewish, from a mob in Jerusalem, that he asked the Roman military through his, ne- through his nephew to, for protection uh, so that he can be led away from them because he's an innocent Roman citizen. And so he's calling on the government, on the military, to do what it should, namely protect innocent civilians. So here he is utilizing the force of the Roman military, if necessary, to keep people from bringing harm to him. So again, I can go on and talk about these things, but I'd refer people to the uh, that piece uh, at the Gospel Coalition website. Just look up Paul Copan and uh, Greg Boyd's misunderstandings of the of the warrior God. Well, uh, thank you for that, uh, Doctor Copan. Um, your, all your answers are really great. We appreciate you taking the time for this, and uh, we just want to end with one more question. And uh, we just want to know, uh, why don't we see commands like the Mosaic Law or the stuff in the Old Testament? Why don't we see commands like that today? Um, did God change? Uh, well, we read in Matthew 19.8 that uh, God permitted certain laws because of the hardness of human hearts. Not because these were ideal laws, but these laws assume that human beings sin, that human beings go wrong. Uh, it assumes that there's a kind of messiness in the world. And so what do you do when somebody steals your property? Uh, what do you do when, uh, when there is a when, – when, when, when two people commit adultery and so forth? 
Now we see that there is uh, that there is a carryover into the New Testament. That there are a lot of themes, like you know, whether it be adultery or theft or uh, the like, idolatry. That these things carry over. There's a a theme that carries over. But we also see that in the Old Testament, that these you know that God commands some things that are uh, less than ideal, but but not uh, you know but not unjust. Uh, that uh, that there are certain things that may be harsh, and again would have been understood in that way in in that time. You, know, you think of even like today in Singapore, where uh, where a person can be caned. You, know, you may remember the story of Michael Fay, who spray painted these cars in Singapore as an American, and um, under the Clinton administration, he you know they so you know and he was caned. Again, it's a pretty severe punishment, um, but boy, what a deterrent that is. Um, and so when you've got these kinds of punishments and the kind of deterrent value that, uh, that is behind it, again, there's, there's the matter of justice too, but, uh, but again, sometimes that severity can speak, uh, very powerfully and keep people from, uh, bringing, uh, harm to others. Um, also we, we should add this. That uh, that the that some of these commands that are that are given, it says in Hebrews chapter two that you know, in chapter ten and chapter twelve that the law that was given it says if every you know if every infraction received a just recompense, it goes on to say how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A lot of us think oh that was so you know that back then it was really harsh and cruel and brutal and so forth. Well, keep in mind that if you turn away from the gospel, it is much more severe. So we see in the New Testament that love is intensified. We see that in you know the, the love of God is seen very clearly expressed on the cross of Christ and so certainly would concur with Greg Boyd there. But we also see that if you know, that the wrath of God is also intensified for those who turn away from Christ, that it is all the more severe for us to turn away from the one who speaks from heaven. Uh, it is all the more severe that we, uh, you know, that if we don't hear the one who is speaking to us through Jesus Christ. And so there is this, again, it's intensification. How much more will it be? Uh, how much more severe will it be for those who, uh, you know, who uh, neglect this great salvation, etc.? So we see, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two, he says, behold, the kindness and severity of God. And I think a lot of times we're tempted to, uh, to minimize the severity, but we see the severity carries over in the New Testament. We see love fully and deeply expressed, and it's that severity that is there that is actually an expression of God's love. It's not as though this severity is pitted against the love of God, but it's an expression of the love of God, that God's, you know, you know John 3, God's, you know, God loves the world, but also his wrath remains on the world if it continues to rebel against him. And this is an expression of love. And so uh, Miroslav Volf, I quote him in my Moral Monster book, where he said he didn't like the idea of a God of wrath. Uh, he said it seems so beneath God. You know, and he grew up in the former Yugoslavia, where, again, there are all sorts of atrocities were committed. There were villages destroyed, women raped, and uh, a population of three million displaced, and so on. And he says, you know, I, he said, after that, I couldn't believe in a God who didn't get angry mm. at evil in the world. And I think this is a very helpful perspective here because here he is speaking out of this experience, recognizing, you know, thinking, oh, uh, you know, it's very easy for us in America to speak in this kind of cushy way. Oh, a God of wrath, this seems so terrible. But when you're living in those sorts of circumstances, uh, we, we, we kind of pray the prayer of the martyrs, the heavenly martyrs. Again, this goes against the cruciform idea that Greg Boyd is talking about, mm. who are asking God, you know, how long? Until you avenge our blood, uh, in Revelation chapter six, nine, and ten, there you know there is this very clear expression that that God bring judgment when they're when people are refusing to repent, when they're bringing harm, when they're spreading evil, when they are when they are uh, engaging in this sort of murderous activity. Uh, it's sort of like Lord, either change their hearts or stop their hearts. <laughs> mm. uh, and so there is that kind of a picture. That is being presented, and and we need to be fair to both of those representations. 
I think that's great. I love I love how you put that together and kind of wrapped it up for us because it does seem like there kind of is this false dichotomy, I guess you could say, between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God that doesn't really exist. And that false dichotomy, I think, kind of creates a stumbling block for people. They say, you know, I can't believe in this God of the Old Testament. But the way you wrapped it up, it really kind of shows that God's love is good and his justice is also good. Um, so I really, I really appreciate how you, how you wrap that up for us. If somebody wants to find out more, uh, about what you've written or anything like that, where can they go to find out more about you? I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a website is Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N.com and, uh, done stuff. Uh, take a look at my book with Matt Flanagan, which goes into a lot of detail, on uh, the issue of violence in the Old Testament. It's called, Did God Really Command Genocide? And so it gives a full orbed picture of this, probably the the most extensive treatment of this issue uh, to date. And so I'd encourage you to take a look at that if that is an issue particularly uh, of interest to you. I've done uh, the book, Is God a Moral Monster? And, um, And again, continue to speak and write on these topics. And so I'll periodically have a new video or uh, article or something like that that shows up. But I also do stuff on uh, a range of topics in the philosophy of religion, the moral argument for God's existence, Christian apologetics, and so forth. So uh, just paulcopan.com. And uh, yeah, those are some of the things that I'm up to. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. um, I know we hit you with some really tough questions, some really big ones. And uh, but we, we trust you. We know that you are kind of the authority. We, we've read your books. We think you're great. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. Well, guys, it's been a great uh, privilege to have three interviewers. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, you've been a great, uh, great group to interact with. Thanks for your good direct questions you didn't uh, you certainly didn't shrink from asking the tough questions and so uh so thanks keep up the good work and uh, glad to be with you got, got me in my zone but you know i'm not alone